Assalamu alaikum everyone, welcome to another Kalam Cast podcast. My guest for today's episode is Dr. Abdul Latif Halimi. As well as being an influencer and a student of Islamic learning, he's also a GP. He's someone that I was trying to get on my last episode, but I was unable to do so due to his very busy schedule. Thankfully, I was able to get him for this particular episode so that we could discuss aspects pertaining to the coronavirus and the Muslim community in general. Please keep in mind that in order to maintain social distancing, this particular episode was recorded over Zoom. So given that this is the case, you may hear some sounds in the background, which I apologize in advance for. In any case, here's the episode. Hope you like it. So yeah, there's been a lot of stress on hospitals broadly. Now, alhamdulillah, I don't really work um, at the front line. That tends to be the emergency department. We have a lot of people coming in thinking they might have coronavirus. I work in um, a place that's a bit more removed um, where we get patients after they've been screened. So I haven't copped the worst of it or the team I work with hasn't copped the worst of it, but there are a lot of other doctors and nurses who are really struggling. Yeah, it sounds terrible. I mean, uh, I was listening on the radio not very long ago that a pandemic such as this has not happened in the world since the last 107 years. And uh, they were referring to the Spanish influenza. Yeah, it's true. Because um, just in terms of its scale and how rapidly it's spread, mainly because globalization just ensures that everything happens a lot faster than it used to in the past, it's become a very serious health crisis very, very quickly. So it's uncharted territory for healthcare workers and public health experts in terms of its scale and speed. So do you think uh, appropriate responses have been made in order to deal with it? Um, If you're talking about Australia, I think there's been a serious problem with messaging and the coherence of government policy. I I don't think the federal government has done a good job, to be honest with you. I think people aren't really on the same page as the government and the messaging from the prime minister just hasn't been coherent. And overall, doctors I've been talking to and health professionals I've been talking to aren't happy with how the government has been responding so far. Basically new territory. A lot of people don't really know what to do. don't really know how to react. I think from a Islamic moral perspective, it's an open shut case. When you are facing a pandemic, you do whatever possible within the concessions that the Sharia permits to push away potential harm from your community. I've been pretty impressed with how it's been handled by most imams, by how it's been handled by religious authorities in most parts of the Muslim world. So I don't think there's been much pushback from the majority. That's a positive that we should recognize and we should praise those imams and cooperate with them. But at the same time, you have had a bit more resistance from particular groups with with some really bad cases overseas, such as in Malaysia and parts of Bangladesh and India, I think mm. it is. 
where some religious groups, some Islamic movements have been very resistant to stopping their activities. And that's going to have a very negative impact on their countries. Simple as that. Yeah. With regards to that, um, even in Bangladesh, you mentioned that example. I think the one that you were referring to specifically was where 10,000 Muslims had gathered in a town to uh, do some kind of spiritual healing. There were some prayer services and things of the like that were taking place. Yeah. I believe, if memory serves, there was about 500 infections or even more. So uh, I, I think people have are having a tough time reconciling between faith and perhaps health. You know, I, I don't think that's all Muslims. There's, there seems to be a certain portion of people who seem to be dispositioned in this way. It tells you in a way how seriously we take our faith. Uh, in another way, it perhaps gives us an indication as to how much we misunderstand our faith. Um, I think the positive is that people are attached to the masjid, people are attached to dawah, people are attached to prayer and congregation. And those are positive things that we need to recognize when talking about something like this. Mm. But I, I think the understanding of what Iman is and an understanding of the importance of expert advice from doctors and understanding that the world isn't always running on some sort of conspiracy and understanding that despite a high level of Iman, sickness and plague and epidemic are things that can severely impact Muslims. So we, we even have Sahaba, uh, I think it was Abu Ubaidah, who passed away because of the plague. And many other Sahaba who were in Syria at that time died because of the plague. So Iman and attachment to the masjid and taqwa are not things that make you immune to the challenges of the plague and of epidemics. And I think that very simple and common sense, straightforward message has enraged a lot of Muslims um, around the world. And it's tending to happen in countries with very bad health infrastructure. So if, if you're talking about a place like Bangladesh, for example, even though the country's made some strides over the last decade or so, it still has very poor health infrastructure. And when you have tens of thousands of people coming together, if you're going to have a breakout in the country or a breakout in one of the major cities, it could be absolutely catastrophic. And a lot of people will die. I just can't wrap my head around the understanding of Islam that's okay with that. I mean, someone once said very succinctly that it's a sign of the Iman to feel sorry or uh, upset that we cannot attend the mosques as we once used to. And it's perhaps a sign of good fiqh that one understands the reason as to why this is. It perhaps goes back to education and our, our understanding of what uh, the Sharia actually wants for us. Um, you know, yeah. having said that, you know, you, you mentioned or talked about conspiracy theories. You know, I've, I've seen a bunch of those uh, all over the place uh, as of recent. You know, that things indicating that perhaps this virus is a man-made virus. It's built to control people, to make countries into police states and things like this. Uh, surprisingly, even coming from members of uh, our own community, 
And uh, yep. it goes to show, I think, um, there, there, there's a thing here. I mean, for example, we have that famous ayah in, in, in the Quran where Allah says, Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. But for some reason, uh, the words of the experts or the specialists in this area aren't necessarily being respected or abided by. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? So I, I think we're, um, we're, we're dealing with a problem that extends well beyond this current outbreak. And the fact that there's a real knowledge deficit in large parts of the Muslim world, uh, parts of the Muslim world that may not have had the opportunity to get like a mainstream education, for example, or who may not have access to the latest news or the latest research or access to experts. I think that does contribute. Like there is a socioeconomic link between, you know, particular um, indicators like poverty and not completing year 12, not completing um, a university degree and an increased prevalence of conspiracy theories being dissociated from expert advice and so on and so forth. So I think we're dealing with um, a major issue that is connected in part to the poverty and to the colonization and the corruption and poor, poor governance of the Muslim world. So I think that plays a role, both in Muslims who are still living in Muslim majority countries or who've come from Muslim majority countries into Western states. So I, th I think there's a lot going on in the background. There's a big context that helps explain um, some of these phenomena amongst Muslims. One of the things that I've found to be quite astonishing in, this, uh, in these recent weeks is that you know, medical doctors that I do know of uh, making posts on social media, their posts seem to be taken in by members of the community as just another opinion or another perception rather than something which is uh, informed and based on fact, basically. It is quite disconcerting in some way that people have their own, sometimes have their own do-it-yourself DIY approach towards things. I've picked up on a gradual shift. So when it first started in China, people were more likely to approach it from a conspiracy theory perspective. But as it's come closer to home, gradually the narrative seems to be shifting and people are starting to take it a bit more seriously, from what I can tell anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, you're always going to have people who are going to hold out and say, you know, this is just like the flu or this is due to some sort of conspiracy from China or whatever. But I do notice that slowly, slowly reducing and people starting to tune in to the facts and to expert advice, slowly, right. slowly. It's somewhat disconcerting that this is going to be the new normal. They're suggesting that a vaccine of some sort might not be available for a minimum of six, six months, perhaps even more than that, nine months, maybe yeah. even a year. Yeah, so yeah. the, the um, estimates are between a year and a year and a half. Oh, wow, that's even worse than what I said. 
Yeah, so it's it's a longer haul issue that's going to have a quite severe impact on how people live their lives right across the globe mm-hmm. until until Olosopan or Dalit craves that something emerges and people can go back to their normal lives. I think the biggest, one of the biggest things that's come out of this is the closure of the haram in Mecca and Medina and the proclamation that perhaps Hajj is going to be cancelled this year. Uh, this is something which is highly unprecedented. I don't think we've, anyone has seen this in their lifetime. Yeah. It's not to say that the haram hasn't been closed off previously, that Hajj has not been cancelled previously. That has occurred from a historical perspective. But we've never actually heard of this in our own lifetime. A huge uh, milestone, perhaps, that, that's taking place in front of our eyes. It's, it's obviously quite sad to see the haram closed down um, and to see it empty. But I think at the same time, there's a bit of beauty in it as well, in that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the religion that he's revealed unto his prophet, peace be upon him, is dynamic and compassionate enough that even the holiest place on earth can be shut down in the interest of the Muslim. So I think, I think we, we, we do have to keep in mind that Islam puts a very high premium on the life of a human being. And there's a famous hadith of the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he said that the hurma or the sanctity of a mu'min is greater in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the sanctity of the Kaaba. And when, when you're talking about a pandemic, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of Muslims coming from all across the Muslim world to the haram, the potential for this pandemic to take off in Saudi Arabia directly or in the rest of the Muslim world broadly is just enormous. It's just beyond, beyond words. What could happen to the Muslim world if Hajj were to go ahead or if the Umrah were to continue? So closing down the Haram, and closing down the Prophet, peace be upon him's mosque, and also closing down Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. Yes, it's sad, but there's also a rahmah and a beauty in it in that we're trying to preserve the Muslim. We're trying to preserve you. We're trying to preserve your children, your, your siblings, your grandparents. And that's something that's good. That's something that's praiseworthy. Instead, they should see it as a measure to protect the life of human beings. And that's a good thing. The Prophet, peace be upon him, and his Sahaba were denied access to Mecca for a very long time. And that wasn't seen as a punishment. That was seen as a fact of life due to a certain balance of power. And until that balance of power was corrected in favor of Muslims, Muslims were able to access the haram again. Mm-hmm. So, and we should also have a bit of humility uh, when talking about the ghayb. Um, the ghayb is something that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows and even if something becomes slightly apparent to us or we, we believe it is the case we should remain humble and always say Allahu alam we shouldn't mm. speak in a definitive manner and say this is a punishment or this is a reward or this is a fitna without qualifying it by saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best you know the closure of the mosques um, is a sad thing but this outbreak, this pandemic has also resulted in some good things. So it's given people the opportunity to do 
good things by either sick, by their neighbors, by their families. Um, it's allowed people to reflect upon the purpose of life. Um, it's allowed people to reconnect with their families, spend more time in their homes, maybe dedicate more time to Ibadah. So just overall, I think we need to be a bit more humble in speaking about what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is decreeing. In terms of the closure of the mosques and so forth, you mentioned that it's it might potentially extend to one year or perhaps even more than that. It's very unprecedented for us. It's very new territory for us in the sense that uh, we probably won't have Jummah prayers for that extended period of time. It perhaps teaches us that we need to create a type of spiritual understanding within ourselves, which is not necessarily linked or connected to the mosques or people or places or things of that nature. So the vaccine might take a year to a year and a half, but government guidance is this state of lockdown might be closer to six months to a year. So I think there are two different timelines, but just to go back to your main question, it's important to emphasize and I just remembered something that the Pope said a couple of days ago regarding confession. He's like, given these circumstances, and obviously Italy is at the epicenter of the outbreak now, he's saying, considering what's happening, this is a time to sort of bypass confession as it's traditionally been done and to sort of speak to God directly. Coming from a Catholic, I just found that a bit, a bit interesting that this coronavirus has forced them to alter their understanding of the relationship between the human being and the divine and sort of bypassing the clergy. To bring it back to Muslims, I think there's, there's going to be enormous difficulty, especially when we start fasting and the inability to go to Tarawih and the inability to connect to the mosque at a time when Muslims are closest to the mosque. I think that's going to make people quite uncomfortable and frustrated. But at the same time, the gates to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the ability to worship from one's home, that's going to stay. And none of us have an excuse to, to not make the most of those opportunities in keeping connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if the mosques are closed, even if Jummah prayers are not running, even if we can't attend lectures or classes. Um, it's, it's part of our tawheed and our connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the gate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always open irrespective of what's happening around us. I think, I think that's something we need to maximize in coming weeks and months. I foresee a situation and it's based on what's already been occurring. You know, people have been praying uh, Salatul Jum'ah by themselves. They found, you know, locations, maybe they get two or three friends and then they have their own Jum'ah. I foresee the same thing taking place during Ramadan with Taraweeh. You will probably yep. hear or see more of people having their own private Taraweeh sessions at homes and so forth. Despite the, the problems which are taking place, people will perhaps out of emotionalism resort to these sorts of things. And I imagine there is some obvious, very obvious risk in practices such as this. Yeah, I guess it depends on the size of the congregation. So if you're sort of inviting along 
10, 15 people into your house to pray a secret tarawih, for example. Um, <laughs> you know, a bit, a bit like, like the... Communist government. Yeah, it's like a bit, a bit like the um, Muslims of late Islamic Spain who sort of had to um, pipe their prayers and um, their, their worship. I, th- I think it does depend on how many people you're bringing along. So if it's essentially a small jama'ah of 15, 20, 25 people, then obviously that would be defeating the purpose of why these measures are in place. But if it's like a father leading his children and his wife or you know a couple of siblings coming together to pray or remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in whatever way they can during Ramadan. I, th- I think that's a bit different and I can't, can't foresee the government really sort of being that, that invasive into people's lives. On that same topic or similar topic, I've seen a lot of claims amongst members of the Muslim community where they say that, that our religion has aspects of it which protect us, naturally protect us from viruses such as performing wudu five times a day before each prayer and so forth, as was the customary practice of the Prophet Now, it's one thing to say that this is a ritualistic practice of Islam and this is something which a person will be rewarded for and that, and that this was the practice of the Prophet But is it accurate or proper to make this claim that this is something that can help you? I think Islam's emphasis on tahara is obviously something that, in my opinion anyway, is something that can contribute to countering the spread of particular diseases. But whether we can say definitively that, you know, doing wudu or specific rituals can help prevent epidemics and pandemics, I, I think that's something we'd need to justify with evidence um, be evidence from the deen or evidence from science it's it's easy to make claims that you know making wudu will stop you from getting sick but uh, where's where's the evidence for that because as far as we know as far as we're told wudu is primarily a function to purify us for prayer it's not a pandemic reducing mechanism it's ever been discussed as such in scholarly works as far as I know. So if, if you're going to make a claim, if someone's going to make a claim like that, then they should justify it. Otherwise, it's not going to be taken seriously by anyone. It's like uh, similar to some of the claims which were made previously that uh, these five prayers that Muslims are ordained to pray, they help physical you know, balance of the body. It, it is a type of exercise. It helps the back and all of these sorts of claims as well. There seems to be a trend among some Muslims where they like to gain some worldly justification for ritualistic aspects of Islam. I think it comes back to just the fact that we're living in a science-centric society where truth is determined by the scientists and by scientific research. And we're trying to appeal to that mechanism of truth by linking our ibadah to it. So I I think it stems from a lack of confidence in the truth of Islam in and of itself. And we need to rely on some sort of scientific explanation directly or indirectly 
to convince ourselves as individuals and as communities of the truth of Islam. I, th I think that's a broader problem we have in our community, um, whereby we're always trying to get into that scientific legitimacy. We're always trying to be on the right side of science um, to be able to justify parts of our din. Whereas Islam's logic is a bit different. Islam's logic is you make wudu to allow you to pray or to be in a state of tahara. There's nothing in the texts of Islam connecting that to a medical benefit. So you end up having Muslims trying to create that connection and that connection looks weak and it becomes a source of mockery amongst others. And that's counterproductive. Even if you look to something else, which is unrelated, such as the concept of washing a bowl seven times and the eighth time putting some dirt on it after yep. a dog has licked it. Imam Malik was of the opinion that this is something ritualistic, necessarily have anything to do with hygiene whereas other scholars would have argued the exact opposite. I do understand and appreciate the point you're making in that uh, a lot of these things we're putting onto the religion are based on conjecture or, let's say, independent thought, which is not necessarily part and parcel of the religion. Now, having said that, there seems to be a lot of talk, various people, not necessarily, for, I was going to say for my parents' generation, but it's not necessarily the case, regarding the use of black seed, black seed oil, black seeds, etc., and so forth. There's a famous hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that through the black seed, one can attain a healing for everything except death. In your opinion, as a medical doctor and as a Muslim medical doctor, where does this hadith fit into the, into the equation? I've, I've heard some explanations from Mashaykh, uh, a while back and the way they explained it was that yes the prophet peace be upon him spoke directly and explicitly about healing um, and about treatments and we we should believe and affirm that but the prophet peace be upon him and his sahaba also used treatments beyond black seed and beyond things like honey and beyond things like hijama, the way to reconcile it is, yes, use and consume what the Prophet, peace be upon him, encouraged and told us to. And some of the benefits of these things that the Prophet, peace be upon him, recommended have been discussed by scientists. So black seed, for example, does have strong healing qualities and it's been documented by scientists, but at the same time, also follow the medical authority and the recommendation of people who are experts. There's, there's no contradiction between prophetic medicine and at the same time taking the advice of doctors. So if, if Mashaykh can reconcile between those two things and advise their followers to do so, then there shouldn't be much of a conflict or problem amongst the Muslim masses in doing so. Take your honey, take your black seed, but at the same time, take the advice of your doctor. There's, there's no contradiction between the two. And, and this keeps coming back to the relationship between text and reason, which is something that 
the Muslim Ummah has struggled with for a long time. So do we subject the reason to the text or the text to the reason or vice versa? The, the opinion I love is the opinion of um, Ibn Taymiyyah, who says that sound reason and the texts, the revelation, are ultimately by necessity in harmony with each other. They have to be in harmony with each other. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who revealed the scripture, is also the one who created reason amongst human beings. So this contradiction between prophetic medicine and mainstream medicine, in my opinion, is quite imagined. All right, And it's easy to reconcile between the two. Early on, when, when uh, we heard wind, or we got wind of this particular virus that was... Uh basically taking place, it was, you know, working its way into the public consciousness. There seemed to be a number of conflicting opinions from religious authorities, religious sources, you know, fatwa councils, individual sheikhs, etc. and so forth. Do you think there needs to be some kind of, let's say, Muslim medical authority that advises in this particular matter or matters such as this? Yes, I think um, it is important for there to be a strong relationship between scholars of the Islamic sciences and medical doctors. And beyond just medical doctors, because we tend to focus a lot on doctors, you have experts in public health, you have people who are focused on, on pandemics, for example, people who are focused on medical education and public health awareness and so on and so forth. So beyond just doctors, you have a lot of expertise in the healthcare community that I believe Mashaykh should engage with for the sake of, first of all, the broader community so that Mashaykh are better informed about a lot of these issues particularly now when healthcare and responding to this pandemic is front and center in everyone's mind, but also so the mashaykh can learn some things from the healthcare professionals and the healthcare professionals can learn a bit from the mashaykh. So I think one of the crises of the modern Muslim experience is the fact that Islamic scholarship has become divorced from a lot of the more natural science fields and the social science fields. I think that's contributing to a lot of problems we have in the Muslim world. So starting that conversation, starting that engagement can only benefit both sides and ultimately the Muslim community. And I think not just doctors, but also other professionals in other fields, be it the legal fields, be it the economic fields, be it the social sciences, there is this breakdown, there is this collapse in engagement that needs to be rebuilt in my opinion it is improving like i know i know i know in parts of the muslim world that relationship is improving i believe in saudi arabia the count the council of senior scholars passed a fatwa shutting down the mosques very quickly because they had a very good um, mm -hmm. engagement with the ministry of health for example so there were no dramas there was no back and forth it just happened very very quickly because that relationship was already there mm -hmm. I, I think we can learn from that. I think communication is very important. It's an interesting point that you've uh, sort of raised, and that is in previous times, the sheikh or the Islamic scholar was looked upon as an, as an uh, you know, one-stop shop. He was capable of doing so many things in addition to his Islamic learning. 
you know, in some ways he was a healer, in some ways he was a sociologist or this or that. So I tend to sometimes think that this kind of thinking has carried on as far as some people are concerned. And sometimes even they approach their mashayikh or their leaders or their various du'at that they might be following, basically trusting them when it comes to issues which are not necessarily within their scope, such yep. as how we best manage ourselves, how we organize ourselves, all of this sort of stuff. There seems to be a level of, and I'm not sure I like to use the word, like blind following. With people like yourself, you are in that, that area where you do have an understanding of what, what's taking place with regards to the pandemic and so forth. But for the average person, what should he be doing? I think when you have a pandemic, the imam or the faqih becomes the infectious disease expert. I know, I know that's maybe a confronting way to, to put it, but no imam, no sheikh, no, no fatwa council, when told by an expert and a, a medical authority that something has to be done, will say no. So if the experts say you have, you have to bury... Um, coronavirus victims in a body bag for public health reasons, no fatwa council will say no to that. If, if the authorities say you have to suspend Juma prayers, you have to. No fatwa council is going to say no to that. So at a time of crisis, at a time of pandemic, we have to reorient ourselves as to who is the authority. And at a time like this, the authority are the experts in this particular field. There's, there's nothing in, in training to be an imam, in training to be a sheikh, that equips someone to deal with these issues. There's, there's very little there. The same way there's little in medical training that enables a doctor to give fatawa on the fiqh of marriage and divorce. We, we have to respect authority. We have to respect who knows and who doesn't know. And it's not, it's not something that lowers from the level of imams and mashayikh to say that they are not the source of expertise at this time. They are followers. They are followers with some sort of authority amongst their congregation. So what they should do, what imams should do, is listen to what the authorities and the experts are saying and then relay that to their congregations and tell the congregation that I am relaying expert advice. I am not an authority in this regard. Otherwise, otherwise you're going to have this massive fitna in the community where mashaykh are saying one thing and the authorities are saying something else and people are confused. Amongst confusion, you're going to get a lot of anxiety and a lot of mistakes and errors in the community. So my advice is to the average Muslim listen to what the experts and the authorities are saying at this time. Do not burden your mashayikh with what they are not able to carry. Due to certain misinformation which has been expressed in, in other countries, even locally, in countries that you've even described, things which have taken place, infections which have taken place as a result of misunderstanding from religious authorities or religious leaders or whatnot, I can't help think that there might be a level of skepticism targeted towards religious authorities or religious leaders as this pandemic progresses or even after it. Do you have any thoughts regarding that? 
I think a fair bit of it depends on how Mashiach and scholars respond at this time. Those who are going to defy the mainstream authority-backed understanding and approach to this pandemic, those who are on the wrong side of that will lose a lot of confidence and trust. Those who are compliant and know their limitations and are being cooperative and are trying to help the authorities and the community during this very difficult time, I don't think they'll be swept up in like a great wave of skepticism as relevant to this particular episode. Now, what's happening on a grander, bigger societal level, divorced from this pandemic, I think there is a general trend towards skepticism of religion broadly. And that's like quite obvious. And I think that that's one of the great challenges for Muslims all around the world at this time. And addressing that and dealing with that is very complicated. Having said that, what are some words of advice that you could probably give to anyone who's listening to this particular episode? My advice first to Mashaikh is do not put yourselves or your congregations in positions that you can do without. So don't, don't try to find loopholes. Don't try to subvert the authorities or the doctors on this issue because that's just the wrong thing to do. Some will see that as a type of insult, but I don't, I don't perceive that to be an insult at all. Rather, you're pretty much saying that one should specialize in that area in which they're qualified to exercise their opinion in. Yeah. If a doctor talks about the fiqh of whatever, of, of any topic, he'd quickly be called out as someone who's making mistakes, as someone who's not qualified to be talking about these issues with any sort of authority. Similarly, if Mashaikh are talking about these issues without knowledge and without qualification as relevant to this pandemic, they're going to be called out. They're going to be criticized and they might put their congregations at risk. For, for the sake of Mashaikh, for the sake of Islam in the West, for the sake of Islam in Australia, it's better for our people of knowledge in the Islamic sciences to just know the limitations. Same way it's best for people in other fields to know the limitations when talking about matters of the deen and to defer to the people of knowledge and expertise. And by and large, that has happened. So that's something that should be mentioned. But there are some voices here and there that are just not doing the right thing. And that's going to be a problem. When it comes to the average Muslim, the average Muslim should get their information relevant to this pandemic and relevant to medical issues from the people of expertise. When it comes to advice on how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it comes to advice on issues related to where we're at in the face of this pandemic, then by all means, ask the Mashaykh and ask the people of expertise as well. So just respect authority, respect qualifications, respect expertise. Ultimately, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for guidance and patience during this difficult time. And inshallah, things will work out. Uh, once again, thank you for just taking part in this episode, despite your busy schedule. Jazakallah khair for inviting me and mashallah your your podcast series is doing great and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward you and to reward our mashayikh being 
um, helpful during this difficult time and to reward all the doctors and healthcare professionals who are also doing their best.